Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He was a fully accredited ambassador from a faraway planet and Earth's first visitor from outer space. History called for a tremendous reception. But Earth people are funny people. And he was lost. Anyone could see that. But she had no idea how entirely lost he was, nor why. We've got two short science fiction stories for you today on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast with at least one Lost Sci-Fi short story in every episode. Thanks to you, the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast is exploding around the world with new listeners in New Zealand, Brantford, Stony Creek, Edmonton, and Toronto, Canada, Ankeny, Iowa, Philadelphia, PA, Barbados, Brazil, and Mecca, Saudi Arabia. There are many more, but we'll mention those in another episode. Thank you for sharing and growing the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. We really do appreciate you. We've just added a new audiobook bundle to LostSciFi.com that people love. The Ray Bradbury and Philip K. Dick bundle has nine short stories from these legendary sci-fi authors, available now for only $4.97 at LostSciFi.com. We've already narrated five sci-fi stories written by William Morrison, and many more are on the way. We had no idea that William Morrison was born Joseph Samickson on October 13, 1906, in Trenton, New Jersey, the son of Russian Jewish parents. This guy has an incredible bio. He graduated from Rutgers University, then earned a Ph.D. in chemistry from Yale at the age of 23. He was an assistant professor at the College of Medicine at the University of Illinois. 
He also headed a laboratory in metabolic research at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Chicago. Samixon worked as a research chemist for the American Molasses Company until 1938, leaving to become a freelance technical writer. Then, in 1941, his first short sci-fi story was released. Writing as William Morrison, for reasons unknown, Bad Medicine appeared in Thrilling Wonder Stories magazine in February 1941. He would go on to write about 80 short sci-fi stories over the next 17 years. If that's not enough, he started writing for DC Comics sometime around 1942. Contributing to stories for both Batman and Superman, he even created a character of his own. That character would appear in the four-hour epic Zack Snyder's Justice League, released in 2021. Played by veteran Hollywood actor Harry Lennox, the character Samixon created 66 years earlier appeared on the big screen. John Johns, a.k.a. Martian Manhunter, is a shapeshifter stranded on Earth originally from Mars. Martian Manhunter first appeared in the November 1955 issue number 225 of Detective Comics. A copy of issue number 225 sold five years ago for an amazing $120,000. You can find a copy on eBay right now at the bargain buy it now price of only $34,995. Somehow, Joseph Samixon also found time to write scripts for a science fiction television series that aired on the Dumont Television Network. Captain Video and his Video Rangers aired from 1949 to 1955. If you're curious, you can watch several full-length episodes on YouTube. Samixon received special thanks credits in Zack Snyder's Justice League and the Lego Batman movie. A legendary sci-fi writer himself, Frederick Pohl, once remarked that Samixon was, and I quote, one of the most shamefully neglected writers in the history of science fiction. That's high praise. Samixon died of complications from Parkinson's disease on June 2nd, 1980, in Chicago. Xanth was the fully accredited ambassador from Gafun and Earth's first visitor from outer space. History and the amenities called for a tremendous reception. But Earth people are funny people. Taken from the pages of If Worlds of Science Fiction in October 1954, Unwelcomed Visitor by William Morrison. All the way over, all through the loneliness of the long trip, he had consoled himself with the thought of the reception he would get, how they would crowd around him, how they would gape and cheer. All the most prominent and most important earthlings would rush to see him, to touch their own appendages to his tentacles, to receive his report of interplanetary goodwill. 
His arrival would certainly be the most celebrated occasion in all the history of Earth. He was coming in for a landing, and it was no time for daydreaming. He brought the ship down slowly, in the middle of a large square, as carefully as if he were settling down among his own people. He gave them a chance to get out from under him before making contact with the ground. When the ship finally rested firmly on the strange planet, he gave a sigh of relief, and for a few long seconds sat there motionless. And then he began to move toward the door. The increased gravity did not affect him as badly as he thought it would. For the dense atmosphere, with its high oxygen content, he had of course been prepared. He injected another dose of respiratory enzyme into his bloodstream, just to make sure, and then swung open the door. The inrush of air caused only a momentary dizziness. Then he climbed over the side and stared about in surprise. No one was paying any attention to him. Their indifference was so enormous that it struck him like a blow. Individuals of both sexes, he could easily distinguish them by the difference in their clothing, were going about their own business as if he simply were not there. A small animal running about on all fours had its forepart to the ground. It trotted from one place to another, making a slight noise with an organ that he felt sure was used for the intake of oxygen. When it came to him, it sniffed slightly, without any special interest, and then ran off to more important business. No other creature paid him even that much attention. Can it be, he asked himself incredulously, that they don't see me? Perhaps their organs of vision make use of different wavelengths. Perhaps to them, I and the ship are not pink and gray, respectively, but a perfect black, which fails to register. I must speak to them. I must make myself known. They may be startled, but I must take the chance. He rolled over to an individual who towered over him a full spard and said gravely, Greetings. I, Zanf, bring you greetings from the inhabitants of the planet Gafun. I come with a message of friendship. There could be no doubt that the other heard him and saw him too. He looked straight at Zanf, muttered something, probably about a pink monster, which Zanf could guess at, but not really interpret, and moved on impatiently. Zanf stared after him with an incredulity that grew by the moment. They didn't understand his language, that he realized. But surely, they didn't have to understand in order to be interested. The very sight of his ship, a mere glimpse of him, the first visitor from interplanetary space, should have been enough to bring them flocking around. How could they possibly greet him with such disinterest, with such faces, which even to a stranger seemed cold and chilling? When you have traveled as far as he had traveled, you don't give up easily. Another, a shorter individual, was coming toward him, and he began again. Greetings, I, Zanf. This time, the individual didn't even stop, but muttered something which must surely have been of the nature of an oath, and hurried on. Zanf tried five more times before he gave up. If there had been the slightest indication of interest, he would have kept on. 
but there wasn't. The only feeling he could detect was one of impatience at being annoyed, and he saw that there was nothing else to do but go back to his ship. For a while, he sat there, brooding. One possible solution struck him, although it didn't seem at all probable. These people were not representative of their kind. Perhaps this entire area he had taken for a city was nothing more than a retreat for the mentally disabled, for those who had found the strain of living too much and had sunk back into a kind of stupor. Perhaps elsewhere the people were more normal. At the thought, he brightened for a moment. Yes, that must be it. Convincing himself against his own better judgment, he lifted the ship into the air again and set it down a few dozen grolls away. But there was no difference. Here, too, the faces looked at him blankly, and people hurried away impatiently when he tried to stop them. He knew now that it was useless to pick up the ship still another time and set it down elsewhere. If there was some rational explanation for such irrational behavior, it could be found here just as well as anywhere else. And explanation there must be, but he would have to look for it. It would not come to him if he simply sat there in the ship and waited for it. He got out and locked the ship so that in case someone finally did show curiosity, no harm would come to it. Then he began to roll around the city. Everywhere he met the same indifference as at first. Even the children stared at him without curiosity and went on with their games. He stopped to watch and to listen. They bounced balls, and as they bounced, they recited words. When something interrupted the even tenor of the game and they had to begin again, they went back to the start of the recitation. Surely they were counting. Listening carefully, he learned the fundamentals of their system of numerals. At the same time, for the sake of permanence, he made pictorial and auditory records. Every now and then, the game would be interrupted by a quarrel. And a childish quarrel, of course, was sure to be full of recriminations. You did this, I did that. He learned the names of the objects with which they played. He learned the words for first and second persons in their different forms. He learned the word for the maternal parent, who seemed to stand in the closest relation to the young ones. By evening, he had acquired a fairly good child's grasp of the language. He rolled back in the direction of the ship. When he came to the place where it should be, he had a sudden feeling of panic. The ship was gone. They must have dragged it away. Their whole pretense of indifference must have been a trick, he thought excitedly. They had waited until they could tamper with it without his interference, in order to learn its secrets. What had they done with it? Perhaps they had harmed it. Possibly they had ruined the drive. How could he ever get off this accursed planet? How would he ever get back to Gafan? He rolled hastily over to the nearest man and tried to put his newfound vocabulary to use. Where? Where? He realized suddenly that he didn't know the word for ship. Where, Gallenfane? The man looked at him as if he were crazy and walked on. Zanf did some swearing on his own account. He began to roll madly around the square, becoming more desperate from moment to moment. 
Finally, just when he thought he would explode from rage and frustration, he found the ship again. It had been dragged to a neighboring street and left on a vacant lot, surrounded by rusty cans, broken bottles, and various other forms of garbage and rubbish indigenous to this section of the planet. Relief mingled with a feeling of outrage. Zanf swore again. The indignity of it was enough to start an interplanetary war. If they ever heard of it back on Gafun, they would want to blast this stupid and insulting planet out of existence. He hastened into the ship and found to his joy that there had been no damage. There was nothing to prevent him from taking off again and getting back to Gafun. But the mystery of his reception still intrigued him. He could not leave without solving it. He rolled out of the ship again and stood there watching it. Evidently, they had regarded this miracle of engineering as nothing more than so much rubbish. They would probably leave it alone now. He could let it remain here and in the meantime carry on his investigating as before. Things would go more rapidly now that he understood some of the elements of human speech. All he had to do was keep his hearing appendages open and interpret the key words as he heard them. It shouldn't take him long. One of the reasons he had been selected to make the trip was that he had a gift for languages, and a day or two more should suffice to establish communications. He left the ship again and began to roll around the city. He listened to traffic policemen directing the flow of helicopters. He stood by unobtrusively while boy talked with girl. These conversations turned out to be very limited in scope, as well as uninstructive in syntax, and he even managed to get into a place of amusement where three-dimensional images created in him a sense of nostalgia. From his slight knowledge of the language, he could perceive that the dialogue was so stale that he himself could have supplied it from stories written long ago on his native planet. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. After a lapse of many hours, the majority of the people disappeared from the streets, and he decided it was time to return to his ship and suspend animation. In the morning, he set out again. By the end of that day, he felt he could understand the spoken language well enough. What next? To learn the language in written form might take too long. And besides, to solve his mystery, he would have to waste time in digging up the recorded forms that contained the necessary information. No, he would have to find someone to talk to, 
someone who would have the necessary information at his tentacle tips, or as they called the appendages here, fingertips. He began to approach various people again, undiscouraged by their cold and impolite replies. Finally, he found the informant he had been seeking, an old, white-haired individual who was walking slowly, with the aid of a cane, along one of the wider and quieter streets. The man looked at him with calm lack of interest as he approached. Zanf came to a stop and said, Greetings. I, Zanf, bring you greetings from the inhabitants of the planet Gafan. I come with a message of friendship. Very glad to make your acquaintance, sir, said the old man politely, but still without genuine interest. At last, someone who had answered. Zanf started his portable recording machine going. I wish for information. Perhaps you can give it to me. Ah, my young fellow, I have seen a great deal and know a great deal, but it isn't very often that you young ones want to find out what we old folks know. Perhaps I have not made myself clear. I am an inhabitant of the planet Gafun. Yes, indeed. Do you intend to stay here long? I have come with a message of friendship, but I have found no one to receive it. Hmm, that's unfortunate, the old man said. People are very impatient nowadays. Time is money, they say. Can't spare the money to stop and talk. Couldn't spare it myself not so long ago. I'm retired now, though. Used to run a stereo store up around Mudlark Street. Biggest store in the city. Everybody used to buy from me. Jefferson J. Gardner's my name. You may have heard of me on... Uh, where did you say you come from? Gaffun. However, I wish to make clear... Never sold any stereos to anyone on Gaffun. Probably don't get good reception up there. Sold them to everybody else, so I'm well known here, Mr. Zanf. But before you go further, got into the stereo game when they first came out. Went like hotcakes in those days, although I don't suppose you know what a hotcake is. Quality didn't count. Only thing that counted was size of screen and strength of the three-dimensional effect. Mr. Glufer... He was mayor then. Robert F. Glufer had a daughter who went in for acting. Not for the first time, Zanf cursed this damnable planet. The only man he had found willing to talk was senile, and his conversation rambled wildly like a feather in a strong and particularly erratic whirlwind. Still, he told himself with a touch of philosophy, I have wasted so much time. I can afford to waste a little more. Sooner or later, this individual will tell me what I want to know. Half an hour later, however, when Jefferson J. Gardner began to repeat himself, Zanf realized that he couldn't just wait for the old man to talk himself out. Different tactics were needed. He interrupted rudely. Why don't people pay any attention to me? Eh? What's that you say? I come from the planet Gafun. I thought that as an interplanetary visitor I would be received with tremendous enthusiasm. 
Instead, I find myself disregarded. I recollect that back in the old days... Never mind that. Why don't people pay any attention to me? Why should they? That is no answer. But it is, sir, said the old gentleman with dignity. They don't find you out of the ordinary. Why pay attention to you? You mean that you are accustomed to visitors from space? No, sir. I mean nothing of the kind. What I do mean is that we are by now thoroughly accustomed to the idea of you. I remember... Never mind what you remember. When I was a child, stories about visitors from Mars or Venus were already trite and stereotyped. What could a visitor do? What might a visitor look like? All the possible answers had already been given, and we were familiar with every one of them. We imagined visitors with tentacles and without, with a thousand legs and no legs, with five heads and seven feet and eighteen stomachs. We imagined visitors who were plants or electrical impulses or viruses or energy creatures. They had the power to read minds, to move objects telekinetically, and to travel through impossible dimensions. Their spaceships were of all kinds, and they could race along with many times the speed of light or crawl with the speed of molasses. I do not know, sir, in which category you fall, whether you are animal, vegetable, mineral, or electrical, but I know that there is nothing new about you. But you are familiar merely with the ideas. I am a real visitor. Young man, I am a hundred and ten years old. And the idea of you was already ancient when I was eight. I remember reading about you in a comic book. You were not the first visitor who has pretended to be real. There were hundreds before you. I've seen press agent stunts by the dozen and advertising pictures by the hundreds about Mars, about Venus, about the moon about visitors from interstellar space. Your pretend colleagues have walked the streets of innumerable cities until now. We are wary of the entire tribe of you, and you yourself, sir, if you will pardon the expression, you are an anti-climax. Your race must be insane, protested Zanf. For all you know, I may come with great gifts which I wish to confer upon you. We have been fooled before, and in view of the fact, as I have reminded you, that time is money, we do not wish to bankrupt ourselves by investigating. But suppose I'm here to harm you. If your race is capable of it, we can hardly stop you so it is no use trying. If incapable, you are wasting your efforts. This is insanity, 
genuine racial insanity. You repeat yourself. The fact is, we've become blasé, said the old man. Thanks to the efforts of our science fiction writers, we have experienced in imagination all there is to experience in interplanetary contact, and the genuine article can only be a disappointment. I am reminded of an incident that occurred when Gerald Crombie, who was city councilman at the time, ordered a 25-inch stereo set. Zanf rolled away. He had his answer now, and he couldn't stand listening any longer to the old man's babbling. He rolled aimlessly, up one street and down another, and he thought of how they would receive his answer when he went back to Gafun. Was it him or the planet that they would consider mad? Almost certainly they wouldn't believe him. He could imagine the exchange of wondering glances, the first delicate hints that the long trip had deranged him, the not-so-delicate hints later on when he persisted in sticking to his story. He remembered the high hopes with which he had departed, the messages with which he had been entrusted by the chief of planetary affairs, the head of the scientific bureau, the director of economic affairs, and countless others. And he could imagine the reception he would find when he reported that he had been unable to deliver a single message. How long he rolled in this aimless fashion, he did not know. After a time, he seemed to come to his senses. It was no use trying to run away from reality, as he was doing. He had to go back to the ship and return to Gafun. Let them believe him or not, his report would tell the truth and the pictorial and auditory records would confirm his story. What a planet, he thought again. Of all its hundreds of millions, its billions of inhabitants, not one had the curiosity, the ordinary intellectual decency, to be interested in him. Not one had the imagination, the awareness. Pardon me, said a shrill voice. Excuse me for reading thoughts, but I could not help overhearing. I am a visitor here myself. He swung around. The figure before him was strange, but an aura of friendliness came from it, and he knew there was nothing to fear, nothing to fear, and much to be thankful for. With a heartfelt double sigh, while disinterested passers-by spared them not even a glance, Pink tentacles and green streamers clasped in a gesture of friendship that spanned the millions of miles of interplanetary space. Unwelcomed Visitor by William Morrison Our next story was also written by the comic book and short sci-fi story writer Joseph Samickson, a.k.a. William Morrison. He was lost. Anyone could see that. But she had no idea how entirely lost he was, nor why. From Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine in July 1955, spoken for by William Morrison. Half of Jupiter's great disk and most of the other moons were below the horizon when the man stepped out of the plane and changed her life. 
As far as Carol Marsh was concerned, he was ordinary enough in appearance, and she wasn't ordinarily attracted to ordinary men. He was slightly over medium height, his features were not quite regular, and he had a deep tan over what had started out as a sunburn, so that she decided he had misjudged the strength of the sun on some planet with a thin atmosphere. She frowned as she watched him look around. She was annoyed by the fact that it took him almost a minute to get his bearings, and realized that she was first a human being, and second, a girl well worth a man's attention. Even the troubled expression in his eyes was something she held against him. A man shouldn't look troubled. A man should be confident, self-assured in a manner that also assured the girl he spoke to. She remembered that back on earth, John Burr had been completely self-assured. It was startling to realize that it was with this newcomer, whose appearance she had every reason to dislike, that she had fallen suddenly and completely in love, as suddenly and completely as if she had fallen off a cliff. I'm looking for some people, he said, but I suppose... His very voice was ill at ease, and that was something else she should have held against him, and against herself. She had always resented men whose voices betrayed their lack of confidence. I suppose it's no use, he went on. I had recognized the house. Who are the people you're looking for? He took out a wallet, and from it drew a stereo picture. Two children, a boy and a girl, were standing with a smiling young woman in front of a sturdy, old-fashioned plastic house. Their clothes were out of fashion by a year or so, but that depended on where you were. Mars, for instance, was always three years behind Earth. Here on Ganymede, on the other hand, you might even be ahead of Earth in some respects. As Carol's eyes lifted to his, she saw him staring at the picture with such longing that she at once knew herself for a fool. They're his wife and children, she thought. He's trying to find them, and I had to fall in love with him at first sight. His eyes were on her now, and she said, I'm sorry, I've never seen them. Have you lived around here long? Five years. Then this can't be the place. He stood there irresolutely and started to turn slowly away without even a word of thanks to her. My father may have heard about them, said Carol, knowing herself for a fool again. Past experience, she told herself ruefully, had taught her nothing. The thing to do was to let him go and forget him as quickly as possible before she learned anything about him, before her feeling for him could become anything more than an irrational, momentary impulse. The stronger the bonds of knowledge and interest between them, the more painful they would be to break, and the breaking was inevitable. The house where she and her father lived was a simple dome-shaped building, its walls and furniture both made of a silicon plastic, whose raw materials had come from the ground on which it stood. There were rugs and draperies of a slightly different composition, woven on the all-purpose household helper that her father had bought before leaving Earth. They lived comfortably enough, she thought, as she led the man in. But he hardly noticed the house or anything in it. When they reached the library and her father looked up from the book he was reading, 
Only then did the man display interest. The book was a favorite of her father's, and it made him unhappy to cut his reading short. Nevertheless, he turned off the projector, stood up, and said, Yes, Carol? This man is looking for some... some friends of his, Dad. I thought you might be able to help him. She held out the picture, and to her relief, her father stared at that instead of at her. Sometimes he was a little too shrewd. If she was making a fool of herself, there was no need for him to know it. He could be a sardonic man, and he did not suffer fools gladly, even in his own family. He was of the opinion that she had used up her quota of foolishness with John Burr. He was shaking his head. Sorry, I have never seen them. Are you sure they live around here? No, said the man. I'm not sure. I'm not sure of anything, except that they're my wife and kids, and I've got to find them. Have you checked at the district office? I did that first. They couldn't help me, but they said their records weren't complete yet. They're complete enough, I should think. Maybe they don't list every prospector who wanders around without settling down, but they wouldn't be likely to miss a woman and two children. I'm afraid that you're wasting your time looking on Ganymede. The man's face clouded. It isn't a waste of my time, he said. I've got nothing else to do with it, and I have to find them. They need me. Mr. Marsh looked away from the man to his daughter, and Carol was a little slow in avoiding his eyes. I see, he said, and she had an idea of what he meant by that. He saw too much. If he knew there was nothing she could do about it, she said, Perhaps, Mr. She paused, and the man said dully, Calendar. Perhaps if Mr. Calendar would have dinner with us and tell us a little more, we'd be better able to help. Not a bad idea, Carol. We should know a little more. Carol selected a dinner and pressed the button that would start its preparation. Her father said casually, You are a stranger to Ganymede, aren't you, Mr. Calendar? I'm not sure of that said the man. Her father's eyebrows went up. Carol said, But you do come from one of Jupiter's moons? I can't remember which one. There are a lot of things that my memory's hazy about. I can't even recall the name of the company I work for as an engineer. That may not be so strange. I find difficulty remembering the school where I taught on Earth. P.S. 654. Wasn't it, Dad? P.S. 634, Mr. Marsh corrected briefly. You see, she said, do you remember your wife's name and the names of your children? I wouldn't forget them, he said. My wife's name was Mona. He stared at the wall for a moment, his face without expression. I can still see the way she looked when I left to undergo treatment. Paul was, uh, let's see, he must be about nine maybe ten by this time, and Wilma must be six or seven. I remember how scared she was that time she found a harmless little phytopod. She thought it was going to bite her. Phytopod, said Carol. We don't have them around here. What do they look like? They're small and furry and have two feet that look like roots. When they stand still, you're likely to mistake them for plants. You do recall some things, said Carol. The little things that don't tell me where to look. 
I remember the time we went on a picnic. I don't recall how many moons there were in the sky, and the ground began to shake. It didn't do any damage, but Wilma was terrified. Paul took it in stride, though. There aren't any earthquakes on Ganymede, said her father. If your memory of that incident is correct, you're looking in the wrong place. I suppose so, he said. But what's the right place? Perhaps if you thought of a few more incidents, we might figure it out. It's the little things you don't forget that can be most helpful. What nonsense, thought Carol, although she kept the thought to herself. The little things can be most harmful. They keep the pain and the memory of pain alive and vivid. She remembered little things about John all too well. The careless way he wore his clothes and the way he combed his hair, the cigarettes he smoked and the foods he liked to eat, and the stupid way she had let herself fall in love with him. She hadn't even had the excuse of its happening suddenly, as it had happened now. She had begun to love John as she had come to know him, disregarding all the evidence of his selfishness, of his genuine inability to care for anyone else than John Burr. Unaware of what was going on in her mind, Callender was saying with somewhat more animation than he had previously shown, I think you're right, Mr. Marsh. I've kept my troubles too much to myself. Maybe you can't actually do anything for me, but it wouldn't hurt me to talk. I should have done my talking long ago when they found me. Where did they find you? asked her father. And what did you mean before when you said you're not sure of anything? They picked me up in a lifeboat, drifting someplace between Mars and Jupiter. The motor was off, but the power pile was working, and the air purifying equipment was on. I was apparently hibernating. I might have been that way for six months or a year. And you don't remember? said Carol. There's plenty I don't remember. But as I've said, my memory isn't a complete blank. My wife and I and the kids had settled down in a new colony. Exactly where it was is one of the things I forget. I believe now that it wasn't Ganymede. Maybe it was some other moon of Jupiter's. Anyway, I seem to recall having some trouble with my health and being taken onto an interplanetary hospital ship for treatment. L treatment, they called it. That's where they put me to sleep. What happened after that, I can only guess. The ship must have been involved in some accident. I must have been transferred to the lifeboat. Alone? asked Carol's father. No, there were two other patients with me. They were found dead. I was the only one left alive. The bodies of the crew members who transferred us weren't found at all. They might have gone back for more patients and then been unable to get away again. Who found your lifeboat? The crew of a freighter, who spotted it drifting across the space lane. They took me on board and revived me, but they were in a hurry and didn't have much time to stay and investigate. Mr. Marsh was thoughtful and silent. Carol asked, Weren't there any records in the lifeboat? Nobody thought of that, at least not in the beginning. At first, when I regained consciousness, my mind was almost a complete blank. Then I began to remember things, but not enough. I couldn't recall where the colony had been, and after I had recovered enough to be able to get around, I began looking for my wife and children. I haven't come across a trace of them, although I've been on many worlds. 
The food had long been ready and waiting. Until now, no one had thought of getting it. He stared as if through the wall, and Carol, after she had set the dishes before him, had to remind him of their presence. When he did eat, it was automatically, without enjoyment. Afterward, her father surprised Carol by saying, Why not stay with us overnight, Mr. Callender? We have an extra room, and tomorrow I may be able to give you a little helpful information. The man's eyes came alive. You're serious? You think that from what I told you, you'll be able to guess where I came from? I use the word might. Don't get your hopes up too much. His face fell again. Thanks for warning me, he said in a flat tone. When later on he had gone to his room, Carol said, Dad, do you really think you can help him? That depends on your idea of help. Why are you so interested in him? Perhaps you're falling in love with him, Carol? I think so. Under the circumstances, that's completely idiotic. Would there be any sense in asking why you fell in love with him? Well, he looks so lost. I guess it's maternal. As genuine a case of the grand passion as I've ever encountered, he said dryly. Almost as genuine as your previous experience. Carol flushed. He isn't like John. Fortunately, you are right. Burr was essentially a selfish baby. I can't imagine him spending his life looking for a wife and children he had lost. In the future, Carol, if you must fall in love at all, do it suddenly. You choose much better that way. Yes, I know, she said. Except for the fact that the wife and children may interfere. But don't worry, Dad. This time I'm not quitting my job and moving several million miles away to try to forget. There'll be no need for that. His face took on a troubled expression. You'll have to face your problem right here. You haven't answered my question, said Carol. Do you really think you can help him? That isn't an easy one to answer. We'll have to prepare him for a shock, Carol. A first-class shock. That's why I wanted to be sure you were in love with him. It may make things easier for him to stand. What things? Her father hesitated. Have you ever heard of this L treatment he mentioned? She shook her head. I thought not, Carol, he said, and his voice was unexpectedly full of compassion. You're going to have a very sick man on your hands. It won't be pleasant for either you or me, and it's going to be horrible for him. But it must be gone through. He must be told. For heaven's sake, what is it? The L in L treatment, he said slowly, stands for longevity. That was what he was treated for. But you see now why it was found to be dangerous and discontinued. The reason you never heard of it is that it was developed and discarded two hundred years ago. Callender wasn't adrift in space for a year or two, as he thinks. He was adrift for two centuries. No! Oh, no! That's why the clothes in those pictures seemed odd. They've been in style and out again half a dozen times, with slight changes each time. That is why, furthermore, he can't find his wife and children on any of Jupiter's moons. The moons were first colonized ninety years ago. But he says... He'll never see his wife and children again. They've lived their lives and died and been buried in the past.
He should have died with them in his own time and not lived into ours. No, said Carol, or I'd never have known him. She was white and trembling, and her father pulled her to him and let her head rest on his shoulder. Mr. Marsh said, Perhaps you're right. I don't know. Anyway, he'll have to be told. And for your sake, I'd better do the telling. Carol was silent, and they both thought of the sleeping man who didn't know that his old life had ended and that a new life was to begin so painfully in the morning. Spoken for by William Morrison. You will find our short science fiction stories on many websites, but will always find the lowest price at LostSciFi.com. Go to LostSciFi.com and get your sci-fi fix for less. Thanks for listening. We would be honored if you'd leave an honest five-star rating and positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. Your reviews encourage others to check us out, so they are very important and greatly appreciated. Next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, disease contaminated their ship. Any moment, one of them might become infected and spray lethal sparks to the others. There was no cure, except prevention. And that meant three spacemen left to die. That's next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.